0: Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back folks to another episode of Big Swinging Stocks. I'm so excited this week. We've been talking about people's investing stories and now I have the queen of hosting investing stories, Kate Campbell from the Australian Finance Podcast, who since the last time we talked, Kate, you've had such like your glow up, your intro has had such a glow up because it's now co-host of the Australian Finance Podcast, author and you also in released the RASC investing course. So, my first question is, are you okay and have you had a holiday recently?
1: I haven't had a holiday. I'm <laughs> <long> semi-okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a holiday for a while, but it has been a big few years. I think it's been a couple of years since we last spoke. I think that might have been a COVID interview. <laughs>
0: holy moly, maybe, maybe it was. Yeah. And in that time, no shortage of cool slashes to add to your career history. But for our viewers who may or probably do know your fabulous self, tell me a little bit about your money story. Cause I feel like this influences everything you've done and your passion for this area.
1: Yep. Yeah, so I'm someone who has become a bit of a nerd about personal finance, living and breathing it for the last seven years Uh, running podcasts, financial education courses, and working in investment operations previously to figure out how ETFs, manage funds, all of that work behind the scenes, because we often learn about it from the outside. We learn about what ETFs are, but seeing it behind the scenes and how they're constructed and put together is a whole nother ballgame. So that's been a really interesting part of my journey. But Mm -hmm. looking back a little bit further writing Buying Happiness, my my upcoming book, has really pushed me to think about all of those experiences I had with money growing up. And yeah. I was someone that found getting to start investing relatively easy. That's not to say I did the right thing the first time around. I lost quite a bit of money at the very beginning, but I found taking that step and opening a brokerage account and making my first purchase relatively easy, which is quite rare. Like a lot of our community, I'm not sure if it's the same with you, Alex, find opening a brokerage account and making that first investment, two of the hardest parts of their investing Mm. journey. And I think some of it comes down to when I was growing up, my parents really pushed me to take risk a lot as a kid. And one of the experiences that stood out to me was there was a Local Rocker Stedford kind of thing. I grew up in a country yeah. town where everyone would get together. Rocker were were the thing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, there'd be those like uh, little rides that people would take from town to town. Yep. The potato on a stick kind of thing. And I really wanted to have a couple of singing lessons. But my mum's mm. very much someone that says, well, prove that you're interested. And so the challenge was that I had to put my name down, get up on stage in front of everyone, I think I was about 10 years old at the time. I wasn't great at singing, hence probably the singing lessons, but I sang a very off-key a cappella rendition of Wouldn't It Be Lovely from My Fair Lady in front of everyone. And true to their word, my parents paid for some singing lessons, but I had a lot of experiences like that growing up where I was really encouraged to get out of my comfort zone, take risks, and very much that if it didn't work out, well, I could either try something else or I could try again and it yeah. wasn't a bad thing. And that has really influenced the way I got involved with money and investing because I just was happy to give it a shot, which is quite different to a lot of other people's experience with money.
0: Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about that because taking risk is a skill, but people's foundation, like for you, taking risk clearly had positive outcomes or at least outcomes Mm. that you felt comfortable with. But the opposite is also true. And I think that can have uh, an impact on people's perception around money. And the book, I think, is really about that, like the impact of behaviors and your background on how you think about money. And I really loved parts of the book that you talked about, you know, the link, like the psychological link between how you grew up and how you spend money. But tell me a little bit about that. So, Is it as simple as money was good? We're all great with our finances. Money was bad. We're a bunch of muffets.
1: Uh, Normally, it's never, never quite that simple with money. We have a lot of different experiences with money growing up. You might reflect back on your parents openly talking about money, or it might have been something that they never spoke about. Or money might have been a source of stress, especially if. Your parents were struggling to, to put food on the pack table and pay bills. And so the idea of long-term goals in investing might never have been even thought of growing up. And so that's why as an adult, because we don't learn about money at school or uni and it's something we have to have that realization and go, okay, I need to actually start learning these skills for myself. If we don't think about how we grew up with money and those experiences, they often start impacting us and are currently impacting us in ways we might not realize. So, for example, you might have had a family member that lost quite a lot of money maybe a decade ago when they were investing and that they shared that experience or parts of that experience. And so in your head, you might go, investing is a bad thing to do. I shouldn't invest. It's not a way that I can build wealth. And that experience can stay with you. And if you don't unpack that experience and really spend some time thinking about it and maybe understanding that experience and how that experience isn't everyone's experience, it can be hard to get out of that cycle. And even if you learn everything about investing, you might know, you might have the brokerage account open, you might have picked the ETF for you, you might have done all of that stuff. But you still might not be able to take action because these experiences in your past. So that's one of the reasons I think it's really important to understand the past. We don't need to get too deep into the past, but just having some understanding of how those experiences are impacting us today, because they might mean we are struggling to take that first step with investing or we're trying to find the perfect plan. Often if we've had experiences where family members or us have been burnt in the past we've money or investing, we might be not ready to start until we get everything perfect. But when we're investing, there is never a perfect plan, a perfect answer. We just need to find something that is good enough to help us take that first step.
0: And so all those emotions that are attached with these decisions, either to act or to avoid acting, it can be shame and regret. And you talk about this in your book, and you've mentioned they can be really paralyzing for people as well. What do you recommend? Like people, you know, they might you know, acknowledging it is one thing, but what would you say the next step is to actually kind of crack through that?
1: Yes. So once you've unpacked some of those feelings, I think the next thing is to either prove them wrong or figure out if there's bits of truth and bits of non-truth. So education's a big part of that. So if you think that investing is something that you shouldn't be doing because of experiences you've had in the past, or you think that You need to be really smart to deal with money or you think you need a lot of money, you can start working through those and finding uh, enough research to prove yourself wrong. And so that might look like if you think you need tens of thousands of dollars to start investing, if you start doing some research about investing, listening to podcasts like this, looking at the ASIC Money Smart website, you'll find out that that's not true. Especially these days, because there's so many great ways you can get started investing really easily. There's a lot of knowledge out there. So one way to do that is start proving those things wrong, untwisting those things. Another thing is talking to people. A lot of the time, we we don't have conversations about money. And Mm -hmm. if you start saying these things to other people, they might push back and go, "Actually, you do have control. A lot of control about where your money is invested. You don't have to just." have XYZ solution, you can actually change super funds. Like a lot of us don't know that until someone else says, hey, this is a thing you're allowed to do. So having those conversations is really important. And also mm. something I like doing is reframing. And that's an idea I got from the bestselling book, James Clear's Atomic Habits, which I'm sure many of the listeners have read, Alex. And that's a lot of us have those scripts in our head where we say, I'm not good at money. I'm not smart enough to invest. I'm not good at investing. And the more we say them, they're kind of self-prophesizing because it means we don't take those steps. We need a step. So thinking instead, how can you say, I'm learning to manage my money by doing X, Y, Z, which will mean I can work towards my financial goals and putting some structure around that. You might not be great at investing yet, but you're learning how to invest because we're not born As great investors, you know, just pop out knowing how to manage our money, to budget, to invest. Uh, If we had some opportunities growing up to learn, that's great. But it's a skill that most of us have to develop and make that decision to work on.
0: Yeah, I think definitely your point around having more conversations around money is starting to happen. I I see that and Mm -hmm. maybe it's my own confirmation bias, like my own circle of friends are being influenced by (laughs) me talking about it all the time. But there's one uh, particular person that a lot of people find it very, very difficult to talk to money about, their partner. And I'm so curious for your, I I think we've talked about this before actually, how many marriages end up in divorce where the leading cause is money. So it's clearly having an impact and it's clearly something people are avoiding. What do you recommend? How should people approach it? It's the most sometimes awkward conversation it to have. Is.
1: It is an awkward conversation because especially if we've never talked to a, about money with friends or family before the idea of talking to our partner who we may or may not be hoping to plan a future with it does seem very overwhelming and often we've got baggage we might have credit card debt or we might have made some poor money decisions so in, our true. in the past. Money, and skeletons. Was, yes, mm. money, skeletons, money, ghosts, those things in the closet that we don't really want to open up about. And I was talking to a behavioural psychologist, Dr. Daniel Crosby from the US, and he said he has been doing some research over the last few years because he wanted to unpack that reason why money was the biggest cause of divorce in the US especially. And he found the biggest argument people were having were the idea of... Should they enjoy today or secure tomorrow? And that's a really hard trade-off that many of us are making when we're thinking about investing and saving. Do we spend the money now and enjoy it or do we save it? Do we invest it for more choices in the future or what we're working towards? And that was the biggest cause of tension between couples because they maybe they weren't on the same page about their goals or they weren't quite aligned or they had really – Someone wanted to go on a big European trip this year, and someone wanted to work towards financial independence in 10 years. And these goals were constantly at odds. And one of the things he recommended was thinking about how you can align your goals a little bit more. So, finding some commonalities. So, travel might be really important, but the other person thinks financial independence is really important. Sometimes, if you've never had that conversation, there it takes a little bit of time to work out what are those common points. So, explaining each person having the opportunity to explain why those goals are important to them is a key part there because usually one person in the relationship is more into money than the other person.
0: That's so true. That's so true. But I also think that you're absolutely right. Sometimes you can get down to maybe not the particulars, like maybe some people will think, yeah, I want to Coffee is important to me. Like that walk we do in the morning to go and get coffee with the dog, that's important to me, I say, speaking from experience. But often the values, like when people explain, you know, it's important to me because I have this anxiety Mm. around not having enough or blah, 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 blah. That's when the magic happens and often you can find some compromise that everyone feels really comfortable with because it's values focused as opposed to necessarily And hopefully most couples will have similar value. You hope you end up with someone that has like similar worldviews to you so that even if maybe like the extraneous things are a bit different or maybe even polar opposites, you can come to some kind of agreement. But I want to talk a little bit more about you personally. Why is this so important to you? It's so important to you. You wrote a book about it. What is good money habits. Like what is this burning desire you have to get everyone educated about money?
1: I really believe that having a basic financial understanding, enough to manage your day-to-day, put some money aside for the future, share some with friends, family, charity, that really goes hand in hand with having a good life and making the most of the experiences you have today and in the future. Because although money doesn't just buy happiness, you can't just go to the store and say, "Hey, I'll pay you a hundred dollars, please give me happiness. It does add a lot of value to your life. It solves money problems firstly, a lot of things you can throw money at. you can pay for a roof over your head, you can pay for warmth, you can pay for food so I guess we we have a very high baseline in Australia because we do have access to a lot of services and things like that, but money solves a lot of those baseline needs, so to an extent Absolutely. It, it it does buy some happiness. And then Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways we can use our money better to add value to our life. And I guess one of the biggest drivers for me is that money gives you choice. And I've seen this both ways in the lives of my friends and family. The lack of or having money has given them or taken away choices. And that's one of the reasons I'm super passionate about financial education. I've been doing this for years is because having control over your finances, having an emergency fund, uh, working towards getting out of debt and starting to save for goals, maybe short term, medium term, maybe you're ready to invest. Doing this helps give you, gives you more choice in your life. Master and of helps your own you, destiny. Helps you yeah. make decisions from a position of strength and not make decisions because that's the only option available to you.
0: That's so powerful. I think for the people who are like YOLO, live, want to live today, that is such an evocative way of putting it, right? You're like, you're stealing choices from your future self often. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of choices, one of the things that I hadn't encountered as eloquently put in your, because everyone, I got a proof copy, so I got to um, squeeze the book. It's so good, Kate. One of my favorite parts of it that I don't think people talk about is we, in the finance community, it's this dichotomy of the YOLO movement and the fire movement. And you introduced, maybe you've got it from somewhere else, but if it came from your brain, you are the next guru of a mini retirement. I'm obsessed with this idea. You have to explain to everyone what this is. And I have to ask, are you going to go on one?
1: So, this wasn't my my idea. It's come from the financial independence community. And I think originally came from the idea of sabbaticals that Uh, maybe a tenured professor after 10 years would have taken six months to go and learn something and to do some new research and refresh and come back able to spread new ideas and do all sorts of new things. So I think that's where the FIRE movement might have gotten it from. But uh, it's this idea that instead of waiting, because it's very hard to do the enjoy today versus secure the future. So most of us we'll either do one or the other and we find it really hard to stick in that middle balance. And it's a constant trade-off. I don't think you ever fully figure out where you sit in that middle. There's always you could buy this thing today or you could save it or you can invest it for something in the future. I think it's always a challenging trade-off. I, I don't think yeah. I found the the ultimate solution and I think my, my hypothesis is it's something you've just got to keep evaluating on a a daily, weekly, yearly basis. So I really like the idea of a mini retirement. And what that is, is instead of waiting decades until you reach your 60s or 70s to use all that money you've put aside and to tick off that bucket list of that holiday overseas that you finally, finally got the time and money to enjoy, we actually get to enjoy that time in the lead up because a lot of people forget how important using their time is. We think that, oh, we can just do it when we retire. We can do all those fun things later. But a mini retirement, every five or 10 years, you might take three months or six months or 12 months (sighs) out of the workforce to, it could be to spend with family. It could be to go on that once in a lifetime trip. It could be to work on this project you've had at the back of your mind for ages. It could be to write that book or go back and do a diploma at school. But it's a much more feasible way to do it because a lot of us, if we thought now, maybe we need $50,000 to cover our living expenses for a year it's a lot more achievable to get to 50,000 than to get to a million or 2 million, whatever our financial independence or retirement number is. And so we can factor this into our plan because there's no point sort of getting to 60 and not actually getting to do all the things you wanted to do along the way. So you might go, okay, when I'm 30, I'm going to take six months off to work on X, Y, Z. And when I'm 38, I'm going to take a year off to do something else. And you can put Plans in place, whether it's a savings goal or part of your investment portfolio, to make sure you have the resources to take that time and to try these different things along the way. So we're not postponing all the things we want to do for decades.
0: That's so smart, Kate. So has all this been bubbling away in your head? Was writing Buying Happiness kind of your? Ver- I mean, you've been so busy, I don't think you took a sabbatical to write the book, but. Is this a passion project that you've had for a really long time to like put all of this down on paper?
1: Yeah. So I've wanted to write a book for a few years, but the time was finally right in the last 12 months. And I read this really powerful paper a couple of years ago that pretty much said if money isn't buying you happiness, you're not spending it right. And it was by some of the leading happiness researchers in the US. And they pulled out about 80 different studies and went through everything, oh, wow. all of these research reports that have been done and made it a lot more accessible and showed you all these different ways that you actually could use money to improve your life. And I've always had the the idea that having money, having choices, it has improved my life. It has improved the lives of those around me. So I wanted to find the research to sort of back up what my own hypothesis, because I have a lot of hypotheses, but I never actually tested them. So this time I I went and found the research. I found that there are quite a few ways you can use money to improve your happiness. Having more control over your finances and your day-to-day adds happiness to your life. Uh, Not being in debt adds happiness to your life. Having more control over your time adds happiness. Uh, One of the biggest things that makes us happy is the quality of our relationships. And that's often something that if we have more time and more resources, we can spend more time improving our relationships. So all of this has been bubbling away, a lot of things I'm interested in. And so finally, over the last sort of six months, I've put it down in a document that's getting turned into a book, which uh, hopefully will be of some help to my community.
0: So exciting. And when is the book slated to come out?
1: So, the book is coming out, I believe, on the 12th of September. So, it'll be available Booktopia, Amazon, hopefully Dimmicks and some local bookstores because I love supporting local bookstores. I really hope bookstores never never leave their physical presences.
0: Agreed. Absolutely agreed. There's nothing like being in a bookstore. It's so exciting. I think this is the last time we spoke like I said. You've just continued churning out phenomenal content, Kate, and you have such a passion for this area, you and Owen. Um so people who don't want to wait till September can obviously check out the Rask investing course. It's completely free. It is so good. I have been skimming it cuz I keep trying to find good resources to recommend to people. And of course, check out Buying Happiness when it comes out in September. Congratulations, Kate. Phenomenal to write a book. Amazing to write a book about this. Another nugget in the personal finance community. A phenomenal read. I'm so excited for you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Alex, for having me today.
0: And to our listeners, thanks for joining us on another episode of Big Swinging Stocks. We'll see you next week. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more
1: information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes.